Lord, thank you for this um, visceral reminder of the fact that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of you, Father. And we long to know more of you today, Jesus. Uh, we are prone to wander, and when we forget the gospel, we don't love each other as we ought, as Han just sung about. So, Lord, I ask that you would melt any scales that are on our eyes that are keeping us from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I pray that the Spirit would reign. I have prepared as hard as I know how, but, Lord, unless you breathe life, and what I have prepared is nothing but chicken scratch. So please, please bring, bring a power and a persuasion and an insight that I don't have of my natural abilities. That my preaching might be not in words of human wisdom, but in power and demonstration of the Spirit. And I pray that the Spirit would work in every heart here. Every heart would be softened and opened. That it might be good soil upon which the Word of God could land. And bring forth fruit, fruit that will be born this week, so that the way we live our lives this week, people will say, that person has been in the presence of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Every fall I get away for um, a couple of days. This year I'm taking a little bit of a sabbatical, five weeks, but typically a couple of days. And one of the things that I endeavor to do is seek the face of the Lord for what I will preach on the next year. Usually a number of series, but if you've been with us, you know that I had, prepared, had planned on preaching through 1 Corinthians through the whole year. You know, give and take a few Sundays off doing some other things. But uh, just seven sermons into it, something called COVID-19 and all of its fallout hit us. So I retacked my sales and did a number of different series for various reasons. But this morning, I'm coming back to 1 Corinthians. Um, I think we will finish chapter 10 by the end of the year. Uh, we'll do a Christmas series, and then we'll, we'll finish the series all together in the spring with uh, the five-part uh, series from 1 Corinthians 15, the greatest chapter in the Bible on the resurrection kind of culminating at Easter. So it's going to work out, and the Lord has it all planned out anyway. Um, I'm not going to be able to go into the kind of detail that I typically like to because we're outdoors and trying to be a little bit shorter. But to, trust me, there is enough in each chapter, in each verse, to get plenty of stuff out of it without going extremely deep. So with that, testing uh, your listening ability and maybe my teaching and preaching ability does anybody remember what the big idea or the theme of our series from 1 Corinthians is? Say again. Yes, the gospel forgetting church. The church at Corinth was forgetting the gospel. I mean, not in terms of, they, they, they could have parroted the, the, the facts of the gospel, right? If somebody said, hey, what's the gospel? They could have walked you through it, I'm sure. But they had forgotten it in terms of it factoring in how they were living their everyday lives. They had, they had forgotten it in terms of it was no longer carrying weight in their hearts and, and changing the way they live life. So they were living just like the pagan hotbed of Corinth themselves. And as a result, the church was an absolute mess. 
There was division. There was infighting. There were factions. There was intellectual arrogance, a lot of it if you read this book. All kinds of sexual craziness going on. You had one guy, 1 Corinthians 5, sleeping with his stepmother. You had people sleeping with the cult prostitutes of the pagan temples and religions in Corinth. You had homosexuality, which the Bible continues to call something not in God's plan. You had greed. You had divorce. You had drunkenness. In fact, they were even getting drunk at the Lord's table. That takes a lot of work to do that. There were people who were failing to deal in sensitivity with people over gray area issues like meek sacrifice to idols. You had chaos in their worship gatherings. People were taking the spiritual gifts that God had given them and flexing them like jewelry to make much of themselves, to put themselves on display. You had the abuse of gender roles, gender confusion. We're going to hit 1 Corinthians 11 in January. I'm sure that's going to be a very cultural, culturally acceptable sermon series, mini sermon series right there in 1 Corinthians 11. All kinds of stuff going on. Even They're even questioning the resurrection. But the cherry on top of this Sunday of sewage was this. They would not practice church discipline in kind of twisted sense of pride over their tolerance, they would not do that. And the result was they were not just an absolute mess, they were a toxic mess. Now, as I reviewed the seven messages I did in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, I was able to see in a new way that Paul begins this book by highlighting the sin that was the fountainhead for all the other sins. In other words, the sin... That was the source of all the other sins. You know what that sin was? Pride. They were a very proud bunch. And you know what pride does? Just read the book of Proverbs. Pride puffs us up, right? Shuts our ears to the insight and counsel and correction and rebuke of others. And as it puffs us up and as it closes our ear, it actually opens us up then to all other kind of sins, right? That's why pride is the fountainhead of all other sins. And they were out of pride being extremely judgmental when it came to Paul. They would say stuff like, this guy can't talk. He, he, he stutters. He's got a weak presence, not like Apollos. He is a polished speaker. Or they would say stuff like, and when he does talk, man alive, he is a one-string fiddle. It's all about the gospel. It's all about the cross. It's all about the resurrection of Jesus. All this guy gives us is milk, the milk of the word. We want some meat. That's what they were saying. You, maybe you play fantasy football where you rank players. They were playing fantasy pastor. I like Cephas. I like Apollos. I, you know, they, there was all the kind of factions going on. See, in other words, Pride fuels judgmentalism. We're going to come back to judgmentalism as well as all the other garbage of sins that were being spawned in the context of this body. And because Paul knows a divided church is a powerless church, Paul now, as we re-engage this book in chapter 4, takes it upon himself to defend 
his apostleship. Now, Paul is not defending his apostleships because he thinks it's all about him. Let's be clear on that, right? Paul is defending his apostleship because he wants the church at Corinth to be a healthy church through which God displays his glory and reaches in again to the, the pagan hotbed city of Corinth. So that's all kind of the context at large, the gospel forgetting church, and the context specifically, chapter four. You guys with me? So I have a one, um, one point message to preach this morning. It's simply this. Here is, if you distill 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 13, down to its irreducible element, it would be this. Paul is saying, I don't care what you think. I care what God thinks. I do not care what you think. I care what God thinks. Now, before we jump into the text, I, think, I do think I need to give you a few caveats of what I am not trying to say the big idea is. Paul is not, when he, when the big idea, I don't care what you think, I care what God thinks, here's what he's not doing. He's not giving you a license to be a jerk for Jesus, nor me as well. Well, I don't care what you think, I just care what God thinks, so I'll be a jerk for Jesus. You, you ever known anybody like that? Now, if you're a jerk for Jesus, you're a jerk, but you may very well may not have Jesus. Because the Bible talks about something called the fruit of the Spirit, Right? So I don't mean that. It's not a license. It doesn't, he's not co-signing being a jerk using that motto. Second of all, there actually is a very real way in which we should care about what people think about us. There, there is a healthy way to think about that. I have a very, I have an awesome set of pajama pants. They're tiger pajama pants. And I've been known when I need to get gas for my wife early in the morning just to roll them up to make them look like shorts and then go down to Valero and fill up the car for her. And my kids have said more than once, Dad, you, you should care about what you look like in public. You probably shouldn't do that. And there may be a good argument to that, Claire. There may be a good argument. But here's what we definitely should care about. We should care about what people think about our reputation, our character, right? In fact, the scripture says that a leader must have a good reputation with outsiders. There is, there is a healthy way, right, to care about what people think about you. So let's not go the other way with this, this big idea. What I simply mean is this, and I think this is what Paul means. He said, he, he's basically saying, when he says, I don't care what you think, I care what God thinks, he's basically saying this. I need to care more about God. But let, me, let me back up. I need to care more about being faithful to God and the gospel than about you fawning all over me and telling me how great I am. Because if I care more about God and his gospel than about you fawning over me, I'll actually be able to serve you much better than if I put you first. And every parent knows this, right? Every good parent knows this. Every good parent knows that you, there's going to have to be times in your life you're going to be cool with your kid not liking you in that space of time, right? You're going to have to be cool with your kid not being okay with you. You have a toddler. You ought not to go in that road. I want to go in that road. I don't like you for not letting me go in that road. Well, you see some things as a parent that they can't see for themselves, right? As the kids get older, you know, you, you, you say, maybe you ought not to hang out with those people because the Bible does talk about the company you keep, right? You're able to see 
what they can't see as their parent, and therefore you're going to lead and love them in a way that they're not always going to like, but because you love them and you love God. So this message I'm preaching about, hey, I don't care about what you think, I care about what God thinks, really is a leadership lesson for all of us. Who here leads something? Who here leads something? We got moms here, right? You lead something. We got grandparents. I mean, you have a job responsibility of spoiling your grandchildren and sending them back to your kids. Kind of sweet revenge, right? Give them a lot of sugar. But honestly, we all, we all lead something, right? And therefore, this is a message for all of us. And if you don't lead something right now, you will lead something in your life. And if you're going to live well and love well and serve well, you have to embrace this mindset by the power of the Spirit because of the work of Christ on the cross that I don't have to be enslaved about what you think. I do need to be concerned with what God thinks. That's the big idea. We're going to dive in verse 1. My Bible, the wind has blown it all over the place, so hopefully I can keep up. Paul is going to begin by saying, yeah, you think I'm a spectacle. We'll get to that last paragraph. You might think that we're scum. You might think that we're refuse. You might think that we're fools. But here's how you ought to really think of us. This is how we think of ourselves. Verse 1, he says, this is how one should regard us as what? Servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. By the way, the text is on the bulletin, so if you don't have a Bible, you can look on the text. Paul is saying, you ought to think about us as A, servants, and B, stewards. Now, these are very depictive terms. Typically, in the Bible, when you see the word servant, it's the underlying Greek word diakonos, from which we get the word deacon or deaconess. But here it's a different word. It is literally the word under rower. And the image that would have come to mind to a first century Jew would have been these trading ships. They weren't very big, but there would be a lower level with a group of rowers. They were under rowers. And they would row, uh, 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 at the cadence of the master or Lord who would tell them when to row so that that trading ship could make its way efficiently through the waters. So when Paul says, I am an under rower, he's saying, I am rowing for another master. I am rowing for another Lord and it ain't you. I'm rowing for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that barks out my orders. And then he uses the word steward. A steward was a servant who didn't own, I better step back, right? Is that better? Who did not own anything, and yet his master or his Lord would put him over, say, his business or his farm, his house, or maybe his finances at large. And that steward would be invested with responsibility by his Lord, as well as accountability. So when Paul says, you ought to think about me as a steward, he's saying, listen, I have been given responsibility and authority from the Lord, and I will be accountable for how I exercise this stewardship. In fact, that's, that's really the big idea of verse 1 as validated by verse 2. In verse 2, he's going to make the point, the benchmark of my ministerial success is not how you 
feel about me, but how faithful I am to the stewardship of the mystery of the gospel that God has given me. Look at verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's the big thing. That's the benchmark for success. Now, moving on then to verse 3. We're going to see in verses 3 through 5, Paul lay out, he's going to put the pedal to the metal on this big idea, I don't care what you think, I care about what God thinks. And he's going to, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to bring up something called judgment. And I want to do a little sermon within a sermon, a little side note real quick, because I want to address a phrase that the world often says, and sadly, Christians typically embrace. They will say, judge, say it, come on, judge not, right? You're not supposed to judge anybody. You ever heard anybody say that? I mean, doesn't it say in Matthew 7, judge not? Who has heard somebody say that? Now, I got to tell you, that's an absolute twist in the Scripture. And when I hear somebody say that, I want to be a smart aleck myself and say, 1 Corinthians 2.16, the spiritual man judges all things and is judged by no one. <laughs> Take that out of context as well. Let's be clear. The Bible absolutely calls us to judge. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, we are called to judge. That is, we're called to discern between that which is holy and that which is sinful. That which is good and that which is evil. We are called to judge in that kind of sense. In fact, the word krino simply means to evaluate whether something is good or bad, holy or sinful. Now, Katakrino means to condemn. We are not to condemn. God alone condemns, right? But we are to evaluate. We are to judge, in other words, righteously. Now, do you ever struggle with that? Have you ever heard that? Like, and so I, I think it's a tactic of the enemy to get Christians not to be discerning according to the word of God. So there are three R's I want to give you in this mini sermon so that you can judge righteously. Three R's. First of all, you should judge reflexively. What do I mean by that? A reflexive verb is one that points back to itself. So when I say we should judge reflexively, what I'm really trying to say is you ought to judge yourself first and foremost, right? Judge yourself. In fact, that's the whole point of Matthew 7. Before you pull the speck out of your brother's eye, get rid of what? the log protruding out of your eye. But, but once you get rid of that log, do what? Help out with that speck. So in other words, we have to judge ourselves first. We have to evaluate, lest we go around saying, that's holy, that's sinful, while we ourselves are not walking that out. That would be called hypocrisy. Jesus had a lot to say about that. So number one, we are to evaluate reflexively. But number two, we are to evaluate or judge redemptively. In other words, when we come along in an appropriate way, in an appropriate manner, in an appropriate spirit, with a, with a brother or sister we love, whether it's a family member, a church member, whatever, we do so not to puff ourselves up, which is what they were doing, right? We do so not to put them down, but we do so redemptively. We do so to help them in their walk with God, to walk in the light. That's what we're called to do, to do it redemptively. And then finally, we're to do it according to the revelation of Scripture. In other words, we're not to say less than Scripture says. 
somebody asks you, do you think this is a sin? Oh, I don't know. I don't want to judge. Well, if God was clear about that and you don't say what God said, you actually are making a judgment that God was wrong with that, right? But on the other hand, we're not to go too far and add our little pet standards, our pet applications, and preach about that as absolute truth. In fact, he's going to talk about that, I think, in verse 6. You guys are going beyond what the Word says. So how do we judge? Reflexively, starting with ourselves redemptively to be a blessing and to assist people, and then we do it according to the revelation of God. Now, I bring that up because the word judge appears four times in different forms in verses 3 through 5. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. He says, you know what, if you want to judge me, because they weren't judging the right way, right? They weren't judging reflexively. They weren't judging redemptively. They weren't judging according to the revelation of God. They they were sinfully judging to reject his authority and his godly, healthy, holy, helpful, biblical leadership over that church. And so he's he's saying, listen, you want to judge me like that? That's fine. I, I don't really care. He goes on to say, in fact, I don't even judge myself. And then verse 4, he says, For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am there, not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And what he's saying is, listen, I think I'm being faithful. I think I'm walking in the light. But, but even that doesn't get me off the hook because who's going to judge me ultimately in a final, ultimate, decisive, conclusive, completely factual kind of way? The Lord himself. That's why he wraps up that little mini section with verse 5 where he says, Therefore, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring the light to things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And what he is saying right there basically is in light of God's coming truthful judgment, before which all are going to stand, I don't care what you think. I care what? I care what God thinks. Then, in verses 6 through 7, he highlights the pride that was oozing out of the pores of this church. They're all puffed up. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written. I just said they were doing that. That none of you may be puffed up before one another in favor against one another. And then he goes on to say, for who sees anything different in you? What did you have that you did not receive? If then you've already received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, they were acting like the gifts that they had from the Spirit, they somehow worked up on their own. Paul's like, why would you do that? They were given to you by God. Give God glory for those gifts, not yourself. Then, in verses 8 through 11, he deploys a um, he deploys a tactic that we all know painfully can be hurtful and, and in fact, abusive. But it's a tactic when it's used in the power of the Holy Spirit that can be quite effective. Do you know what tactic I'm talking about? Something we all do too easily and too carnally, but it can be used appropriately. He uses sarcasm. We never do that, do we? Sarcasm. He's going to use sarcasm. Now, I I want you to know before I read verses 8 through 11 that next week as we close out chapter 4, he's he's going to soften his tone. 
He's going to come as a father next week. But even next week, last verse of this chapter, he says, shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Even there, there's going to be a, a holy sternness. But here, he's going to employ the gift of sarcasm. I'm going to read these verses in just a moment with all the sarcasm, I think, that's packed in tone-wise to these verses. And what we know, what we know is this, that he's going to use this sarcasm not just to hurt them, but to help them, right? But sometimes to help a person, what do you have to do? You do have to hurt sometimes somebody. And if we're afraid of doing that in the right way in relationship, we're never really going to help somebody. The scripture says, the book of Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? But deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So if you don't have a friend who's willing to tell you the truth when you need to hear the truth, you don't have a friend, according to Scripture. So let me read with a bit of sarcasm these verses, verses 8 through 11. I, I should have brought somebody who's an actor or actress up here. Should have had Emma do it because she's a great actress or somebody else to read like with drama. So I'm going to try. Already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Oh, without us, you would have become kings. In other words, we've been holding you back. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are, you are held in honor, but we are held in disrepute, disrepute. I did a terrible job of doing that, but somebody else could have done better. But there's sarcasm there, right? There are, there's sarcasm. He's trying to make the point. You all are getting so heady and so obnoxious and so proud. In fact, you consider us in two very not encouraging ways. Did any word jump out at you from this, these few verses right here? Any word jump out at you? How they were considering him and some of the other apostles. What were they calling them? Spectacles. Not these things, of course, right? But they, they, they were considered a spectacle. And that was actually, this is kind of fascinating. That was a technical term for a prisoner of war that after their side lost the battle and if they were taken alive, they would throw the POWs in cages place them on carts, and roll them through the city streets before jeering masses, before bringing them into these large architectural ancient uh, arenas, which are incredible how they built them so big, just packed with thousands of gleeful observers waiting for those POWs to either A, be fed to wild animals to be torn to pieces before them, or thrown out before trained gladiators to see how long they could last before they finally succumb to the gladiator's death blow. He said, that's who we think you are. You're spectacles. He goes on to say, you guys think of us as fools. Is the word from which we get moron. He's used this word already in this book. He said, I know you guys think I preach a moronic message. I know you think I'm a moronic messenger, but that's okay. I don't care that you think I'm a spectacle. And I don't care that you think that I'm a fool. 
I care what. I care what God thinks. I don't care what you think. I care what God thinks. And then in verses 11 through 13, he makes it clear that he was not angling for the very thing that they were so fiercely lusting after, namely status. 1 Corinthians 4, let me get back there again. The wind has blown it away. He says, verse 11, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and we're buffeted and we're homeless and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Now listen, he was willing to endure all that because it was not for status. He wasn't all concerned that they fawned all over him. He knew he needed to be a faithful steward, right? He knew that he was an underrower for a Lord that wasn't them. And he goes on to say, and we end the text with this, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I got to tell you, um, those are fairly pungent terms. The word scum means off-scouring. If you clean a nasty floor, it's the stuff that would be in the bucket of water. If you clean a nasty toilet, it's the stuff that would be cleaned up. And the word refuse, that either means garbage or excrement. He says, I know you guys think that we're off-scouring, and you think that we're excrement, but it doesn't matter to me because here's what I do care about. What? I care about what God says about us. Now, what's interesting is in the ancient Greek world, those terms scum and refuge began to be assigned to the undesirables of society. They would be called scum or refuge, just like people sadly and sinfully do with others today, right? But what's even more fascinating is this. The, the ancient Greeks, just, just like people today, were very, very superstitious. And outside of worshiping the living God, everybody's superstitious, right? And when they were hit by a plague, some kind of widespread sickness, they would find people who had that particular sickness, and they would put them on a ship, take them out to sea, stand them up on the side of the ship, and they would say, because they were very superstitious, they would cry out to the gods, and they would say, oh, gods, let them be our scum for us. Let them be the refuse of us. And they would throw them off the ship to their drowning death in hopes that they would placate the anger of the gods. Do you hear a reflection of the gospel in that? Because Jesus Christ wasn't pushed over the side of glory. He willingly laid aside his glory. He said, my meat is to do the Father's will. And he came willingly to this sin-stricken scum, our sin, refuse, our sin, our rebellion. And he took that on himself, on the cross. When God made him who knew no sin to be scum, to be refuse, to be sin for us, that in turn we might become the righteousness of God in him. And in love, God placed on him our sin and poured out the wrath and judgment and holy indignation that we deserve so that we 
might be cleansed from all our refuse and all our excrement and all our sin and all rebellion and brought into the family of God. And Paul so embraced this message that in Christ he was adopted. He was able to say, you can call me all those things. That's cool. Because I know that I am deeply and dearly accepted in the beloved. And I just want to live for his pleasure now. Do I care about what you think? To a degree. But does it bind me? No, it does not. And I think that this truth is extremely liberating. And as we go to the Lord's table, I think the bread and the wine, the body and the blood, remind us of two ways that Jesus sets us free. Because I'm looking at some people, you are not free. You've been freed by Christ, but you're not experiencing freedom. You're going to always learn to experience more freedom in the gospel your whole life. It's, 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 a, it's a gradual thing. And I need to be free more. But here's, here's the first way Paul's mindset shows us how the gospel can set us free. The gospel can set us free. I've been trying to make it plain. Let me try and make it even plainer. The gospel can set us free from the enslavement of the opinion of others. How many would, would just, in a moment of, of clarity, in a moment of authenticity, in a moment of vulnerability, say, I am far too often far too concerned about what others think about me? Anybody, anybody say that? Man, this is a church that's just been set free. I want to do your devotions with you tomorrow morning, okay? But for the three or four of us who maybe fight the fear of man, what Jesus has done for us in his death, burial, and resurrection isn't just something that gets us home. It gives us power and freedom from the enslavement of the opinion of others right here and now. Now, if we were just to be honest, slavery to man's opinion has always been an issue since the fall right? It's always been an issue. But in this super social media age, fear of man has been hopped up on steroids, right? This, 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 this was fascinating to me. Richard LaHaye, he's a psychologist and anxiety expert, and he said that the average high school student today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Now, I don't know how we arrived at that deduction, statistically, anecdotally, but it seems like it does carry some weight, doesn't it? People are racked with anxiety, and they start looking for love in all the wrong places, only adding more to that anxiety. But when you get a hold of what Paul is telling these people, that, listen, you can call me a spectacle. That's all right. You can call me scum. You can call me a fool. You can call me refuse. You can call me crap. I know who I am in Christ. I'm accepted in the beloved. In fact, let me just tell you who you are in Christ. May these elements remind us. First of all, you are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. You are Beloved, beloved and blessed, Ephesians 1, 3. That's who you are in Christ. You are chosen in Christ. And it wasn't because he needed a great pitcher on his team. You couldn't even get the ball three feet in the air. But he chose you, Ephesians 1, 4. 
Ephesians 1.4 says right now you are blameless. Ephesians 1.4 also says that you're holy. Ephesians 1.5 says that you were predestinated. Ephesians 1.7 says that you've been redeemed, bought by the blood of Christ. We could go on and on and on. Ephesians 2 verse 5 says that you were dead, but now you are alive. That's why right now something I'm saying is connecting to you. It's not because of me. It's because you have the life of God in you. And you're like, oh, wow, yes, thank you. I need to be reminded of the gospel. And perhaps the greatest summary of why we can be free from the opinions of others is found in Romans chapter 8. For those whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be adopt, to be conformed to the image of his son. And you can say it with me if you know it. And those whom he predestinated, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Wait a second, I don't feel so glorified right now. It's past tense. It's so certain in the counsel of God that though you're not yet glorified for sure, you are. You are eternally. You will be. And then he goes on to ask a bunch of unanswerable, unassailable questions. Like such as this. What's that next question? No, no, no. There's a question before that. I lost it. I lost it. I lost it. I lost it. What is it? How's it go? I just want, I want to close with this. There's six unanswerable questions. Well, I'll just go here. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, no one. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, rose again, is right now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. If God did not spare his own son but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also freely with him give us all things? Who and what shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or trial or tragedy or heartbreak? No. Yeah, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we are more than conquerors through love them. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor powers, nor principalities, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I just want us to lay hold of that. The freedom God gives. And that freedom from the opinion of others now translates in freedom to serve others. Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. How? By giving his life a ransom for many. And his broken, if you can take your elements, we can peel them open right now. And the music team wants to come. This broken body represented by the bread and his blood poured, poured out represented by the juice. That represents that Jesus did not come to be served, but to what? To serve by giving his life a ransom for many. Now, that's our model, and this is how it all adds up. Since I am no longer dependent upon the validation of others, I'm actually now free to really serve them, right? And serve them in grace and truth, truth and grace. Because my goal is no longer the approval and affirmation of others, it's now simply giving pleasure to the one who's approved me, more than approved me at the cost of his son, I can actually speak the truth in love. 
And I, I just, I guess my big idea is this, caring more about what God says than what others say helps me to care for them most. So we can say in the right way, I don't care what you think. I care what God thinks. And we forget that, right? And that's why we've got to keep drinking the milk of the cross and resurrection. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he taken the cup, when he had taken the bread, he broke it. And he said, take, eat, every one of you, this is my body broken for you. And then after they had shared that meal, he took the cup and he said, take, drink, all of you, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. If you've never trusted Christ, don't take this. It's just an empty ritual. That's all it is. And I would say call upon Jesus who died and rose for all who would trust in him. But if you are a Christian in this moment before we take these elements, I want you to ask the Spirit, where am I being enslaved sinfully to the opinions of others? That's actually keeping me from really loving others and following hard after God. Spirit, search our hearts right now. Show us where we are fearing man and not fearing you. It could be in the area of appearance. It could be in the area of intellect. It could be in the area of income. It could be in the area of vocation or education. Lord, Lord Spirit, would you shine your spotlight where it needs to be revealed so that we can experience more of the freedom of the gospel? Anywhere? 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 Now here's the cool thing. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, right? So put it under the blood. He can take that refuse and that scum and that excrement and all that away. And he doesn't do so begrudgingly like, oh, my goodness, there you went off again. If I had known this when I chose you, never would have chosen. That's not God. He's just a loving father. Yeah, he can, there's a little sarcasm here, but at the end, he, the father, right? And he loves you. And he wants you to experience that freedom, my friend. Dear lady, dear man, he wants you to experience that freedom. I'm just, I'm just, I know, I know I'm taking a little longer. I just want us to slow down and sit on this truth. Sit on it. That this freedom in Christ isn't just having an address in heaven, but it's freedom here in the gritty now. He wants that for you. All right. We read in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.